This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to The Brink, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For 100 years, Kodak was the picture of success and innovation in the photography arena. But in 1975, they developed a new technology that they feared would disrupt their profits, the digital camera. So they kept it underexposed and out of sight, sticking to what looked good on paper. But by the time they decided to really focus on this part of their company, it was too late. Let's see what developed. This is Kodak on the Brink. Hi, everyone. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Caston. This is The Brink, and this episode is another listener suggestion, right? Yes, yes. Uh, suggested by Brianna, it is Kodak. Brianna specifically wanted us to talk about how Kodak seemingly missed a big opportunity by jumping on the digital camera, uh, not even jumping on the digital camera bandwagon, but starting it. Yes. And uh, we're going to talk about that and how that played a part, perhaps you could argue a major part, in Kodak's financial struggles. I think that's debatable, but we'll get to the reason why. Yeah, there's actually, as we learn in life, often there's more than one reason why things don't go well, but this is one that a lot of people point to. So we're going to talk about it. First of all, I like that you have a question here just as Let's talk about this in general. Do you own a camera? And my answer to that is, yeah, I actually own a couple of actual cameras, not just my phone, which also is a camera. super fancy cameras? I have a Canon camera that's pretty super fancy. Uh, It's a DSLR, and I like it a lot. Uh, And I got that with reward points off a credit card. Nice, nice. (laughs) How about you? Do you have a camera? I do. I have a really nice camera that I inherited from my mother. It's got a bunch of different lenses and pop filters and things like that. I also have a GoPro. 
Oh, nice. Well, I think it's an off-brand GoPro, but yeah. it does the same thing. Yeah, I have a. I had a GoPro that was uh, subjected to liquid nitrogen once upon a time as part of a CES demonstration, and then I won the GoPro. Nice. Uh, and it still worked just fine. That's if pretty awesome. If you want to see that footage, I think it's on CNET somewhere. Let's talk about Kodak. And we're going to give a very brief overview of the origins of the company, which is fascinating, but it is far too long and detailed for us to go into here. So Kodak, which is actually Eastman Kodak Company, was started by George Eastman, who dropped out of school when he was 14 to support his mom and two sisters. He worked at insurance companies and later at banks. And this is like in the middle of the 19th century, not long after the end of the Civil War, to give you kind of an idea of the time we're talking about. And I love how he got interested in photography because it wasn't through like some official job or anything. It was because he was planning to go on vacation and he thought, I sure would like to take some holiday photos. Yeah. After 10 years of working real hard, he was like, I need to treat myself, treat yourself. Yep. And uh, his coworker said, hey, take some pictures. And so he bought a giant wet plate camera, which is huge and heavy and has 50,000 accessories you have to bring with it to be able to take the photos and process the photos quickly and all this other stuff. And, you know, way back in the day, shutter speed was super slow. You needed a lot of light. Mm -hmm. You know, if anything moved, then it was all blurry. So photography was a very young art at this stage. Yes. And he didn't take the vacation, but he... (laughs) (laughs) But he did get all that information. He did. And he really enjoyed photography. Throughout his exploration of photography, he really believed that this entire tedious process could be better. Right. Of standing around, waiting for your picture to take, having the light. Right. So he actually started to experiment with alternatives to the wet plate method, and he came up with the The dry dry plate plate method. (laughs) So he goes and develops a a, uh, approach, the dry plate formula, and he even applies for a patent. Yeah, he gets it in 1879. In 1880, he says, I've got all this good stuff, so I'm going to make a business out of it. And he leased a building in New York. He bought an engine to power the production of his dry plates for $125. Yep. It was actually a much more powerful engine than he needed, but he's like, hey, that way I can scale up. And he started selling and manufacturing his dry plates. And it was really successful. And he got an investor very quickly, Henry A. Strong. And a year later, they officially formed the Eastman Dry Plate Company. Yep. And uh, and in case you're wondering, what's the big deal of dry plate versus wet plate? With wet plate, as soon as you took the, the photo, you had to start developing it. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you didn't have any time. Uh, Eastman's approach was, well, this dry plate, you can take the photo, and then you can go and develop the photograph later on on your time. So it wasn't like this super uh, pressing need as soon as you click the shutter, you actually have more time. So that's why it was one of the the methods that, that seemed uh, advantageous over the pre-existing art. So Eastman quits his job at the bank and devotes his full efforts to his new role at the Eastman Dry Plate Company. Yes, not only running the company, but still continuing to try to improve the photography process to make it more accessible to the everyman. Yep. But this is around the time that they hit their very first brink moment. It's, yep. a, it's a minor brink moment. Well, I mean, it could have been the end of the company. It's just this was before the company had gathered enough momentum for it to have been. Like, yeah. no one would have known. Like, we wouldn't be talking about the Eastman Company 
in this day and age because it hadn't reached the level of notoriety that Kodak would. Yeah, so what happened was they had made a bunch of these dry plates and sold them, and then they went bad in the buyer's hands. Yeah. And they used all of the money they had to make it right because they they figured reputation was more important than profit. And that's something Eastman actually held to. Right, they recognized accountability was an important concept that they wanted to make sure, you know, their customers were aware that, hey, you know, we consider the quality of our products to be of the utmost importance. And if we fall short of that, then we have to make good on it. Yeah. But this little foible actually led to a revelation that I think is what started, and I guess most people would think started the modern photography era because Eastman looked at these plates going bad and said, you know what? It would be cheaper and more convenient and lighter than glass if we made film on paper rolls. Right. So instead of using these these heavy glass plates, which obviously also, that's a risk, you know, if you're shipping them and things go wrong, then you've got mm-hmm. a bunch of cracked plates. Uh, switching to paper made a lot of sense in multiple ways. The only problem was he had to figure out how to make it work. Yes. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that was immediately an option. Like, oh, silly me, why don't we just use paper? It's because no one had developed that yet. To use a pun unintentionally. Oh, Jonathan, that wasn't. I had said it was unintentional, but they worked on that. You know, they dedicated their research and development toward that, and they were able to actually solve that problem and to create this paper film. Yeah, and they came out with a paper film in 1883. And they started advertising it two years later, and it took off because it worked in most of these dry plate cameras already. Uh It it was easy to fit in there and make it work. And again, way lighter than the glass plates. So it made uh, actually photography a lot easier in general, too, at least as far as hauling a camera to wherever you're going to take a picture. Yeah, yeah. And in between the time that he announced these paper film rolls and he started advertising the product, he got 14 shareholders. That was in 1884, and they changed their name to the Eastman Dry Plate and Film Company because now they're selling film. Yeah, and in 1888, we finally get the name Kodak. Uh, It wasn't for the company, it was for a camera. Yes. They also expanded their advertising reach to the general public because now you've got this Kodak camera. It's affordable-ish for the time. It's $25. Which, you know— Pretty expensive in 1888, but still within the realm of some people's budget. Yes. not No longer just a uh, either professional or a wealthy eccentric. <laughs> I was going to say a wealthy hobbyist. Yeah. The camera was lightweight. It could be carried. It took 100 photos. And to process and print and put new film in your camera was $10. So, so a little less than half the price of the camera. But you're not buying a new camera. Really, film and photo paper were the big ticket items that made profit. Yeah, we're going to touch on that again. In fact, that plays a very important role in our discussion a little bit later on. So yes. that's that's a, a bit of a preview. Preview. I do like the slogan for the first Kodak camera. It was, you press the button, we do the rest. Yeah, I'm totally down with that. I like that. It, it was certainly a, a very effective one. And then in 1889, they would change the name again. One thing constant in Kodak's past was its name changes. Yes. And it became the uh, Eastman Company. And then they started to uh, to market their transparent film, which was also something that could be used in motion picture cameras. Yes. So when we said paper film before, we really meant that. They were coating a, a type of paper. Yeah, with, with this, this photoreactive chemicals. Yes, yes. And it wasn't as good as it could be. It took okay pictures, but they weren't. Super clear. And yeah. and this new transparent film, 
improved the picture quality. Mm-hmm. So, and it also lasted better yeah, than and, and coated paper. Now we're in the birth of cinema. I mean, mm-hmm. cinema was just starting to to formulate around the late 19th century. So it was a great time for Kodak. In 1891, they came out with a film that could be loaded and unloaded in daylight rather than in a dark room, which fantastic news if you're photographing stuff on the go and you don't, you know, have a dark room nearby where you can swap film out. Look, they're just making photography easier for lazy people. First, you don't have to develop your pictures <laughs> right away. Now you don't have to find a dark room to do it. Yeah, now you don't have to have your subject sit still <laughs> for 20 minutes while you try and take yeah. a photo. Yeah, they also changed their name to the Eastman Kodak Company of New York in 1892. So in uh, a couple of years later, in 95, they made a smaller camera, a pocket camera that could take a dozen photographs. Uh, they started diversifying a little bit. They started making products for x-rays, which again was another new discovery at the time. Mm-hmm. And in 1900, they introduced the Kodak Brownie camera, which I guess goes around and does good deeds and prepares Young ladies to turn into Girl Scouts. Your geek is showing, Jonathan. The Brownie camera was a small, a much smaller camera. It was only a dollar, which, you know, still not chump change in 1900. And the film rolls were only 15 cents. So much better than $25. Yeah, but they only took six pictures. So you, you run through those pictures fairly quickly. And Kodak continued to grow. It expanded into New Jersey in 1901. And they said their business plan was to focus on mass producing their their products and to advertise low-cost cameras for worldwide distribution in order to meet customer needs. Yes. I think it's important to note here that Eastman really believed in treating his employees fairly, along with things like reinvesting in his companies, taking the profits and putting them back into the company. And... This, much like when we've talked about Hilton in the past, this is mm-hmm. this is before the time that people really valued their employees enough to give them all of these benefits. He he did profit sharing in retirement and life insurance and disability for his employees to the point that in 1899, before he started his profit sharing in Kodak, he gave monetary gifts to his employees out of his own pocket. Yep. And in 1919, he would give a third of his own personal shares in the company to his employees, and it was worth a princely $10 million. Yeah, yeah. well, by 1927, they were employing 20,000 people. So Mm -hmm. I guess that treatment was doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So in 1932, uh, Eastman sadly passed away. And worse than that, actually, it wasn't just passing away. He Mm -hmm. had been sick. He had had health problems. And he couldn't handle the life day-to-day experience, and he committed suicide. Yeah. So that's very tragic. But the company continued on. The company was continuing his vision of trying to innovate in photography and introduce new products and services. Yeah, so they did. By 1935, they were introducing color film. Mm-hmm. And by 1936, they were introducing color film for the general public. Yeah, this was called Kodachrome film, which I had to note in our notes served as the inspiration for a great Paul Simon song, also called Kodachrome. You know, I don't think I've heard that one. You will before we leave the office. Ah, uh, yay! <laughs> It'll be my version of Kodachrome, so I apologize. I'm excited for that. Yeah. In 1937, Kodak had another first the world's first slide projector. So kind of in between the photography and the movie stuff they were doing. Yeah, which makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, They ended up creating Instamatic cameras and easy load film in 1963, Super 8 
film in 1965. Which, you know, has stuck with us well, for yeah. such a long time. In fact, um, in recent years, Kodak made news when they reintroduced the Super 8 camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually at the CES where they showed that off, and every single person on the video crew demanded that we we had not planned on stopping there but when they saw it they demanded that we stop there and shoot a video which was not on our list but it's pretty cool news it was very cool yeah so in 1962 they're doing real good they exceed a billion dollars in sales and within a few more years kodak is employing a hundred thousand people and are up to four billion dollars in sales and to really kind of nail home how this story is going to have a quick turn in 1975 one of their employees, Stephen J. Sasson, goes and builds the world's first digital camera. So we talked about at the top of this episode that a lot of this hinges on Kodak and its failure to jump on the digital camera. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, it got its start at Kodak. Yeah, digital cameras didn't exist. It was another first. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. But before we get there, let's take a quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
Okay, so before the break, we mentioned Steve Steve Sasson, Stephen Sasson, I suppose I should say, uh, invented the first digital camera in 1975. Tell me a little bit about Mr. Sasson. Well, Mr. Sasson was 24 years old. Youngin. Youngin. I know, whippersnapper. And he had only been working at Kodak for two years. He was not charged with developing a digital camera. He was trying to find a use for a charged coupled device which is another invention that had recently come out. It's essentially a a type of sensor, and it would end up being one of two major approaches to digital photography, the more common one, actually. Yeah. So he Frankenstein together a camera out of a bunch of pieces of other products, basically, Mm -hmm. using the CCD sensor. And then he also created a cassette system, so you could look at the images you took with this digital camera on a TV screen. Mm -hmm. The camera weighed eight pounds, which I was going to say is a lot, but some professional cameras are very heavy. That's true. Especially if they've got the mirrors inside of them. I and mean, if you've got like like a telephoto lens or something yeah. on there too. Yeah. yeah. It was the size of a toaster. And its storage tapes only held 30 images. They could have held more, but people were used to having a smaller set of pictures taken. So the thought was why, why expand that beyond what people are used to? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But it also meant that this was a camera that didn't require film at all. No, you didn't, no film, you didn't no have paper. To, yeah, you didn't have to put stuff into it apart from, you know, uh, the, the storage tape. And you didn't have to take stuff out of it apart from the storage tape. So it was a, a, a true innovation. Sesson said that a lot of people didn't really know about this project, what he's working on. It wasn't viewed as very important. Some reports say that he actually thought it was just busy work they no, gave him. Just, just hey, we got this thing. We don't know what we can do with Figure it. Figure it out. Yeah. So he took his invention to Kodak executives, and he showed them how it worked and how quick you could take images and see them. And it took less than a minute for him to go from shooting a, a picture to being able to show that picture to other people, which obviously is far faster than you would go through if you were to take photos on film and then go to get it developed. Yeah. Now, these first pictures were not at all high quality. Yeah. But, but then this was a prototype, like proof of concept kind yeah. of thing. And the executives of Kodak looked at this. And instead of saying, this is really cool, we're you know, sci-fi ahead of our time, they said. There's no reason for us to pursue this at this moment. They used the excuse that people wouldn't want to look at their pictures on a TV screen. But in actuality, it was the fact that 85% of film cameras and 90% of films sold in 1976, just a year after this camera was created, was Kodak's film and Kodak's cameras. And... Their film and their photo paper were super high margin profit items for them. Cameras, not as much. So why are they going to focus on the thing that's making them less money? Right. Why Why would you try and push a product that's going to kill your cash cow? Yeah, they, right? didn't, they didn't want to cannibalize their company. Right. Well, and, and this is something that we see even today in other companies. Like we see, for example, uh, the example I put in our notes are printers, right? Mm -hmm. Like printers tend to be fairly inexpensive. I mean, you can sometimes find printers cheaper than you can find the toner to put in those printers. And part of that is because the companies that make the printers also make the cartridges for the toner. And they make way more money selling the toner at much higher profit margins than they do with the printers. Mm-hmm. So we still see this kind of business approach today. And Kodak was, you know, the executives were saying, 
the vast majority of our profits are coming from the film that we are selling and processing for our customers. So if we start selling a product that doesn't use that film, where money go? Yeah, and to be completely fair, this is before we had personal computers and the internet and cell phones, so they weren't really seeing a very strong digital trend at that time. Right, I mean, how would you how would you show these photographs, in other words? Like, that's another thing. It's like you could show people on a screen. On a TV, but... Well, yeah, and even if you were showing it on a TV, it meant that you had to take people to where the photos were. And one of the big... Uh, advantages film had was you could take the photos to where the people were, yeah. right? You can you can take a photo album or a few pictures over to grandma's to show her the pictures of the kids, but you can't really, you know, unless you're going to haul everything over to grandma's to hook up a camera to a television or whatever and show her on her TV screen, I can see where the resistance was there. Yeah, and if you wanted a more digital approach, you still had slide projectors. So <laughs> now they did ask Sasson, how soon he thought these photos would be up to the quality of their film photos. Mm-hmm. Because we did have true color, good film at this point. Well, Sasson said it was going to take about 15 to 20 years in his estimation for the technology to get to the point where the pictures were as good digitally as they were on film. So that would be around 1990 to 1995, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range. And so... They let Sasson continue to quietly work on the digital camera. He actually patented the first one in 1978, but he wasn't allowed to tell anyone about it. Yeah. He wasn't allowed to talk about it because they were afraid if people knew, they wouldn't want to use film cameras anymore. I mean, if anyone was really paying attention to the patent office, they could have known that something was up, but very few people do. I mean, there's so many patents that go Mm -hmm. in that it's very easy for stuff to slip under the radar. But here's the thing that I think the key decision that really, in the end, hurt Kodak, at least in the digital photography market, is they had essentially 10 to 20 years to develop this technology Uh for this disruption that Sasson was saying was coming and, and a few other people. And they didn't focus on it. They didn't really develop it in that time, knowing that it would need to come out. I just love focus and develop. We're talking about cameras. Yeah. You're make, we're both making tons that, of puns. That time it was unintentional. Yeah. Like, you just can't talk about cameras without talking about, like, zooming in. Yeah. Well, but you're exactly right. Rather than dedicate a sufficient amount of resources to the research and development so that they would be right there on the tip of the spear mm-hmm. when digital photography was ready to emerge, because it was just a question of when, not if— they didn't do that. Uh, they did allow Sasson to continue to work, but it wasn't like he was leading up a R&D lab specifically dedicated to digital photography. And we usually save our lessons for the end of episodes, but I think this is a valuable one where if you detect something that looks like it's going to disrupt your business, it's probably better for you to get ahead of that by dedicating resources to finding out how you can be a leader mm-hmm. in that space rather than to stick your head in the sand and say, no, we're just going to double down on uh, what's profitable right now. Yeah, honestly, it's speculation, but I kind of think that if Eastman had been around at this time, he 100% would have been like, this is a fantastic idea, let's pursue it. Yeah, even if we don't make it a product right away, at least we can make sure that we're at the very front of research and development. Then he'd probably be like, let's figure out how to better monetize it. Yeah. Now, they did hit another snafu in 1976, Polaroid filed 12 lawsuits against Kodak regarding patent infringement in relation to instant photos. Yep. 
So in 1985, Polaroid won seven of those lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and that basically meant that Kodak couldn't sell the film for their instant cameras. So they've got all these instant camera owners that now can't use, can't use their, their Yeah, once they go through their film, there's no more to go yeah. into it. So yeah, and they also had to pay nearly a billion dollars to Polaroid in uh, in fines and fees. But that was okay because by 1982, they were making sales of $10 billion. Yeah. So. But uh, while that happened in 82, it, just two years later... Forbes puts a sick burn on Kodak and says that the company is not staying current with the times and is starting to fall behind. It's, de it's depending too heavily upon its existing businesses. Yeah, and Kodak kind of responded. Some of the executives at Kodak are like, ah, Forbes is blind, whatever. They, they shook it off. So in 88, Kodak hits its peak. Right, mm -hmm. it gets as big as it will ever be, at least up till present day. And who knows what the future will bring? But at that moment, it was as large as it would ever be. Yes, and that was at one hundred and forty-five thousand three hundred employees. Mm -hmm. uh, that year, they also bought Sterling Drugs for five point one billion dollars to expand into chemicals. So, photography at that point, if it had been successful, would have only been a portion right. of their business. Right, but it didn't make money as quickly or as much as they wanted, so they sold it off piecemeal shortly after buying it, and they only recouped half the cost. Yikes. We'll get into it later, but I also think that possibly was a poor decision. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think when you lose $2.5 billion, you got to say that that wasn't, wasn't the best decision. Well, especially because Fujifilm did something similar later on. But made it work. But made it work. Yeah. So, 1989, uh, Sasson and co-worker Robert Hills create the first DSLR camera. And that is essentially the the granddaddy of the digital cameras that we use today. Yeah, right? pretty similar. I yeah. mean, obviously, they're better now. but And this technology, obviously, was good enough to start selling to the public. And Kodak still said no. Yeah. It's, I really feel like the digital camera was Kodak's redheaded stepchild. Yeah. I say I'm a redhead, so no disparagement <laughs> there. Now, in 1989, the CEO at the time retired, Colby Chandler. Mm-hmm. And Kodak had two people they could have replaced him with. And one of those people was strongly in the digital photography camp, and one was strongly in the traditional film camp. And they went with traditional film. And they went with traditional film. Kay Whitmore. Yeah. So the problem is that not just that Kodak was kind of dragging its heels on digital photography. If that were all it were, then we'd just say, well, gosh, if Kodak had only done this sooner, we would have had mm -hmm. digital cameras earlier. The real problem is that other companies weren't dragging their heels. Yeah, so Kodak didn't completely miss out on that boat because their digital camera was patented. Yeah, they could they could license out they, the patent. They licensed out the patent, so they made a few billion dollars off of it. Yeah, and they also would provide uh, some of the technology for some of the other uh, camera companies that mm -hmm. were building digital cameras, including Nikon. So at, at 91, you get a digital camera system but it's not a Kodak camera. It's a Nikon camera that contains Kodak technology. Yeah, they just provide the sensor for the camera. Ironic, since that's what led to the digital camera in the first place. Yeah. And it was in this time in the 80s and 90s that Kodak started fighting with Fujifilm because Fujifilm was producing camera film quicker and cheaper than Kodak, and they right. turned the monopoly into a duopoly yeah, so, at that point. So now Kodak suddenly has actual real competition mm -hmm. in the space, and... It's competition that can produce at a scale comparable to Kodak, but at a price lower than Kodak. So now the troubles are starting to become more clear. Whitmore, the the leader, the pro 
traditional, traditional film. film leader gets uh, gets the axe mm-hmm. in 1993 and is replaced by George Fisher. And George Fisher says, golly, we really should have jumped on that digital camera thing earlier. Let's go for it now. And he stayed with Kodak for a long and successful leadership that lasted years and years and years, right? Six years. Oh, all right. But during that time, he did introduce some things that almost brought Kodak back into the current age of photography. So in 1995, they released the Kodak DC-40 digital camera. Mm -hmm. And after that, the DC-20 in 1997. I don't get why it went from 40 to 20. Maybe it was the wait. Maybe it was the wait. Maybe it was the time it took to shutter. (laughs) I I don't know. Anyhow, it was the first digital camera of its kind for under $1,000. Yeah, it's significant. Yeah. And still, they didn't really market it. So now they do have these cameras out in the marketplace, but they aren't advertising them, which was a cornerstone of Eastman's business plan is to make sure you advertise, advertise, advertise your product so people know about it. Right. So they didn't really do that. But they did, during Fisher's time, hit their all-time high stock price of $94.75 a share. Which is, I don't know if you can use the word impressive, but it really illustrates how far they fell in the years following. We'll, we'll get into that story, the actual precipitous fall of Kodak, in just a moment after we take this quick break. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. Snakes. Zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. (laughs) That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. So in 2000, despite selling plenty of film and even, I guess, a couple digital cameras, their profits were dropping. They dropped to under $2 billion, which from $4 billion is— That's a big drop. It's a big drop. And 
they actually start to push digital photography as a consumer product uh, really hard starting in 2001. That was pretty late in the game. They introduced the Kodak Easy Share system, but their cameras just, if you put them side by side with cameras from competing companies, they didn't look as impressive. Yeah, they weren't as snazzy or sleek. Yeah. And not to say that Kodak Easy Shares were bad because I think I owned one or at least played with one back then. But other companies were innovating quicker, too, because they had started jumping on this digital camera train sooner. And there were enough of them out there that mm-hmm. there was competition. So there was a, a strong incentive to differentiate your camera from the others on the market. Yeah, and, and that is the same year in 2001 that film sales peaked yeah. as opposed to digital photography. Now, one thing I think is interesting, and it might be surprising to our listeners, is actually digital cameras are easier to manufacture than mm-hmm. film cameras. Film cameras have lots of mirrors and uh, parts that you have to have very precisely aligned. They're also easier to manufacture than film, which takes quite a bit of expertise. You yeah. have to be a chemical engineer, basically. So it, it was easier to use from a consumer standpoint as well. You don't have to handle film at all. You don't have to take the film to go get processed. And you can get cheaper pieces, and they're more readily available to make a digital camera. And... You can, at this point in in 2001, we're now talking well into the personal computer age, Mm -hmm. although we're still years away from the smartphone age. But it's now to a point where you could have a computer with tons of pictures on it. And if you you were one of the people who actually invested in getting a color printer, you could even print photos out. Although uh, it would take a couple of years for a color printers to reach the kind of quality where it could at least approach film. But you could also burn your pictures onto a CD and go get them developed at that time. But this all leads to the point that digital cameras, kind of to Kodak's credit, were not profitable for them. They were losing, at that time, $60 on every camera sold. Yeah, you can't stay in a business like that unless, again, you have some secondary source Mm -hmm. of revenue that supports your, your primary one, right? So video game console manufacturers do this too where they'll sell a video game console at a loss, right? They're selling it either at cost or even maybe below cost, but they make money because they also make games for that system. Mm -hmm. And that's where the profit margin is pretty high. And so you recoup your losses and start making profits that way. Digital cameras, you can make accessories and stuff for it, but, you know, it's not like like film. It's not the cash cow Mm -hmm. that film had. So there were some merits to the objections that some of the Kodak executives had had a couple decades earlier. And they did try to veer a little bit into printers at a certain point in time. Yeah, to a point where where Xerox was kind of mad at Kodak. Yeah, yeah. But uh, by 2002, you know, they're they're really playing catch up at this point because they've lost that cutting edge. Yeah. You know, now they're in the mire with everybody else and their profits dropped to 80 million, which, you know— I wouldn't complain if I had $80 million. But if you, if you had earned $2 billion one year and it dropped to yeah. $80 million the next year, you might say like, wow, that was a big pay cut. Yeah, and by 2004, they finally buckled down. They're like, we have to restructure. We have to go and focus more on the digital photography market. And they cut thousands of jobs because yeah. that's what happens when you yeah. restructure. They had to get rid of a lot of... Uh, of processing plants and, and mm-hmm. chemical plants and that kind of thing over the years too. And that would continue on over the next several years. Uh, in 2005, they had the EasyShare One, the world's first Wi-Fi enabled camera. Finally, another first, they're back on top. The, um, well, 
I mean, if it had been really user-friendly, maybe. But like a lot of firsts when it comes to consumer products, it was not particularly intuitive or easy to use. It, it was a great idea. It's one that we've seen lots of cameras with since, the idea that you can connect the camera to a local area network and share your photos wirelessly without having to, you know, plug cables between your camera and something else. And at that time, people weren't really securing their networks yeah, so much. This, so, so this was all, you could was, find one. It was also early in the days of Wi-Fi, right? So it was, if it had been a little easier to use, if the user interface had been more uh, intuitive, I think it probably would have done a lot better. But it honestly was one of those products that if you tried to use it, 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 it could be frustrating. And so no one wants, you know, you always want, Eastman had always said he wanted to make the process more accessible and easier to to use and for the common person to be able to pick up a camera and take photos. And this seemed like it's a great idea, but the execution was lacking. Yeah. So they stopped making it, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Because shortly after they stopped making it, you know, that that concept of emailing photos wirelessly kind of took off. I mean, we do it now with our phones. Yep. They also launched their Easy Share Gallery, which is great as a way to share your photos. Mm-hmm. You know, but they had had the technology for four years. So they bought a photo sharing company in 2001 and then spent four years tweaking it right. for the general public. And then they released it. But by the time they released it, they were competing with Flickr and Photobucket and things like that. So there were already places where people were putting their digital photos. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, I know anyone out there who's had to deal with digital files of any type, it's very frustrating when you start adding extra places where things can go because then you're just you're constantly searching for where you put that one thing. So most people, once they adopt a particular service, they stick with it because doing otherwise is a huge pain in the butt. Yeah. So in 2006, despite these these couple of slight glimmers of hope, their profits take a steep decline you know, steeper than they already had. And I wager to say they've never really fully bounced back from that. In 2007, their patent on the digital camera expired, which further hurt because now anybody can use that technology. They don't have to license it. Yeah, so they can't make those licensing fees. Uh, They do have some high-profile projects. They made sensors for the Discovery Space Shuttle in 2008, But they also had to start looking at those patents, the intellectual property they owned that was still protected, still active. Mm -hmm. And they realized that in order to remain solvent, they were going to have to start selling them. Yes. So they do that and they make about $2 billion in three years. Yeah. So that helps keep the company going. Yeah. But by 2010, they were only employing 18,800 people globally down from over 100,000 people. And the demand for film, because they were still selling film, was a tenth of where film had been in its heyday, which is really unfortunate. I still like taking some film photos, although I've lost <laughs> lost my knack at it. I tried to take some underwater photographs with a disposable camera last year, and they did not turn out Yeah, good. usually those cameras, unless you're in a very, very clear water with lots of light, you're just like— and that fuzzy thing is a fish or maybe my foot. Yes, or yeah. a clump. Yeah, and maybe it's just a rock. <laughs> yeah, so 2011, after eight straight years of losses, they were really struggling. They The sales had really gone through the 
the crapper. <laughs> their their profit. Classy, Jonathan. Hey, I'm just saying, <laughs> man, this was just bad. Their profit, their credit rating, they were both at 0%. Their, the shares in their company, which you remember was more than $90 per mm-hmm. share uh, at its heyday in 97. In 2011, their shares were trading at 54 cents each. So it is no surprise that in 2012, they declared bankruptcy yeah. and downsized a lot. Yep. So they spend the better part of 2012 trying to restructure the company to consolidate their debts to pay off creditors as much as they can so mm-hmm. that they can emerge. Uh, this was not, you know, you know, they wanted to avoid liquidation. They didn't want to go completely out of business. And, and they did. Yeah, they were able to recover, at least recover enough to go back into business and climb out of bankruptcy. Yeah, and in 2013, they reemerged. Yep. They were smaller, and a lot of their focus after that time has been on photo software and social media apps. Again, I I feel like it's kind of chasing the trend by 2013. Yeah. Uh, Harvard Business Review said of this that, uh, and this is a quote, once one of the most powerful companies in the world, today the company has a market capitalization of less than $1 It's sad to see, see it fall. Yeah. But you do you do have a kind of a happy ending for them. I guess it's not really an ending because they're still around. Yeah, and and they might eventually make a full comeback to be the the top dog in the photography arena again. But in 2015, they do something that I personally think is really cool. Yeah, it's kind of cool, but it's also kind of like it's 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 kind of good and kind of sad at the same time. So what Kodak did was in 2015, they signed a deal with several of really like the major movie studios in the United States. And the deal was an agreement where those studios would buy a certain amount of film, like movie film from Kodak every year for a certain amount of money. And the actual terms were undisclosed. So they didn't say how much film would be purchased each year and how much it would cost But it was an agreement, and some people saw it as Kodak's desperation move to try and pull in more revenue in a dying medium. But others said, no, there's something very special about film that that makes you shoot in a very specific way. If you're shooting on film, you have a limited amount of shoots that you can do, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have, you can only shoot as much film as you have. You, you have, cannot. You have to track the time that you spend in each scene to make sure that you don't run out of film. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and it costs money to process it. So yeah. the more you shoot, the more expensive, not just because you're you're taking up more time, but you're literally taking up more film that you're going to have to process. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all of that ends up adding to the cost of a film. So some people say that film forces directors to be more responsible and more accountable. Gosh, and I know that, some movies that could really use that. <laughs> yeah. When you have a digital digital system and you're just limited by however many hard drives you have, uh, then you may not have that discipline. And there are certain film directors who insist on shooting on film, Quentin mm-hmm. Tarantino being one of the most famous. But even J.J. Abrams shot episode seven of Star Wars on film mm-hmm. and was one of the people really advocating for this. So it's a it's a happy story in some ways, but in other ways it's kind of, it's a little sad both for Kodak and just for the art form of shooting on film in general. The fact that this agreement was almost necessary in order to preserve that. Well, hopefully it will make a comeback. As a personal fan of photography, I still participate in photography scavenger hunts. Yes. Actually. There is a side note I feel we need to mention here because we mentioned earlier how Kodak bought a chemical company. Yeah, and how that didn't work out and they ended up selling it piece by piece and, and only made back half of what they spent. Yeah, well, Fujifilm saw the trend away from film 
they saw that digital cameras weren't really a very good income maker. Yeah. And so they also bought into chemical companies, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, healthcare, but they stuck with it. They actually even have a line of skincare, like moisturizing skincare that gives you flawless film-looking skin. Oh, good. So, yeah, if you're going to go get your picture took, go yeah. go get yourself some of that moisturizer first. Yeah, so they stuck with it, and it has done them pretty well. You know, I don't know exactly where they stand today, but there are plenty of articles when you research Kodak, if you go to look into it further, that say why Fujifilm succeeded where Kodak failed. Yeah. While I definitely think not innovating on the digital trend earlier hurt Kodak. I also feel like not diversifying. Yeah. I think I think depending too heavily on a medium that had limited viability was the big problem. It wasn't so much that they didn't go digital, it's that they didn't get away from depending almost entirely or so heavily upon film. One other thing I want to mention, because I love it in your little fun facts section, Mm -hmm. is that you can actually see the world's first digital camera. It is on display at the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of American History. It is. You can can go to the the Museum of American History over in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian. Yeah, but you you can't see the first digital photograph because that was not kept. It was of a Kodak lab technician named Joy. And just they just deleted they just that tossed one. Huh? It, yeah. yeah. Well, such is life. And that wraps up this episode about Kodak. Thank you again for the suggestion. We appreciate all of them. We love yeah. getting these because they're uh, it tells us what you guys want to hear about, what you're curious about. And we love learning about it and then sharing that with yes, you. Please send us more. So if they do want to send us more, where can they do that? Well, they can email us at feedback at the And you can also check out our website. That's thebrinkpodcast.show. There we have an archive of all of our episodes. We got a little more information about us. And you can check that out. And uh, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Caston. Get your picture took. The Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.